So for those of you who have been listening for a while, you'll remember a few months back I had on Ken Peterson. He's the gentleman who wrote the book that shows Mormon doctrine and teachings in the Apocrypha. Now, for those who might be new to the podcast, I'd recommend going back and listening to episode number 21st. On this episode, I have Ken back on, and we have a conversation about one book of the Apocrypha in particular, and that's the Pistis Sophia. This book of the Apocrypha is fascinating. In its pages, we see the resurrected Savior teaching the mysteries of the restored gospel to his followers in a question-answer kind of a format. Ken and I have a conversation about the book's contents that range from temple ordinances to more detailed accounts of the three degrees of glory to the generations of the gods to the reckoning of time in the celestial realms and even the conception of the Savior himself. Buckle up because this episode is going to blow your mind as we see Joseph Smith proved right over and over again from a book that is 2,000 years old as it dives into the mysteries of the restored gospel. And that's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I just want to take a moment to thank you, the listener. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure if anyone would really listen. Now, to my surprise, this thing has taken on a life of its own. And that's all due to you, the listener, spending your time here with me, and it means a great deal to me. Now, as a husband and father, I'm keenly aware of how important time is. It feels like there's just never enough of it. So when you are spending your time here listening to this podcast, I feel a responsibility to never waste your time. In that spirit, as this podcast has grown, I feel like I need to do you, the listener, justice. I want to continue to produce good content and upgrade the audio quality. That takes better equipment and better software, and that all takes money. Now, I've tried to advertise, but you'd be surprised. There's not a lot of people wanting to advertise on a Mormon fundamentalist podcast. I know, surprising, right? Now, if you want to help support the podcast, you can do that one of two ways. The first is go over to mormonrenegade.com and hit the Donate tab. There you can make a one-time donation, or you can go ahead and set it up to be a monthly recurring donation. Your choice entirely. Now, option number two, because I'm a capitalist, if you want to head on over to mormonrenegade.com, click on the store button, you're going to find that we've got some new swag out. we got some t-shirts, we have a tote, we have cell phone cases, water bottles, coffee cups, we got a bunch of stuff and more is going to be on the way. So, if you feel like that's something you could do, again, head on over to Mormon Renegade and check all that stuff out. If you're not in that position to do so, I completely understand. We're all squeezed right now with high gas prices and high inflation. So, even if you can't, please keep listening and maybe keep the podcast in your prayers so we can continue to grow, produce good content, and better audio quality. Thank you. Listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I'm back again with Ken Peterson. And if you remember from our last time we talked to Ken, we talked about the Apocrypha and Mormon teachings within the Apocrypha. And through our conversation, we uh he brought up something that just really piqued my interest. And I've been looking forward to this again, ever since uh, since we last uh, spoke, is, is hearing him talk about uh, the the Pistos Sophia. So, Ken, it, dude, it's good to have you back on again, brother. Thank you. It's, it's uh, good to see you, too. 
So real quick, what is the the Pistis Sophia? Can you just give us a synopsis of what the book is, who we think the author is, that sort of thing? Sure. I do want to back up. So when we say, when we talk about, you and I talk about Apocrypha, the common misconception is that we're only talking about the 14 intertestamental books right. that's, part of the, that's part of the Catholic canon, uh, otherwise known as the biblical apocrypha. That's not what you and I are talking about. What we're talking about is the general sense of the word, the general meaning of the word apocrypha, meaning any sacred text that falls outside of the biblical canon. Okay. And uh, just to review, there are hundreds uh, around 300 that I'm aware of that I've read of these texts, and some of them are entire libraries. So uh, the Pista Sophia is certainly one of those. <clears throat> and there so, are sub... Go oh, ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, Ken. And there are subcategories of that type of apocrypha. There's Old Testament pseudepigrapha, New Testament apocrypha. There are the Gnostic writings, and some that fall into what's called the 40-day literature. And that's literature that has to do with the 40-day post-resurrection ministry of Jesus Christ. And those are especially fascinating uh, to me and to Latter-day Saints, I think, in general. Absolutely, because the the New Testament doesn't give a, a good account of what happens in that 40 days. Almost right? nothing. Almost nothing, which, as I thought about it long before I ever talked to you, one thought I had was, well, maybe those were, you know, higher higher teachings right maybe these are the ones that deal with more temple kind of stuff and that's why they weren't wrote down or let, let me rephrase that why i thought they weren't wrote down maybe there's more to it but so in we talk and i'm glad you brought that up because we talk about or or you enlightened me to the fact that that the apocrypha is anything that falls outside of the canon of scripture so to speak in the general right? sense yeah and there's so, far more of that than of the biblical apocrypha. So in <laughs> wading through that, you know, I could only imagine how vital the spirit is in, in performing and in, in going through that to kind of sort through what is good and what is bad. I would think that it would almost take a revelatory kind of state of mind to be in, in order to draw those things out. Is that a correct assumption? Uh, yes, but I think even more than that, because as we study Revelation, the spirit has to have something to work with, right? right. Uh, <clears throat> you have to prime the pump in a sense. Uh, so absolutely foundational to this type of study is to be thoroughly versed in the teachings themselves and the canon of LDS scripture. So as you're reading along and to have that on your mind, so as you're reading along with this extra canonical stuff, you can recognize the uh, correlating teachings. Right. So if you're not familiar with the LDS teachings, now, beyond that, <clears throat> I don't have a bad memory, but it's not a photographic memory, which is why I published, wrote this book in the first place, was to help me remember all of this stuff. Uh, but we do know that the Holy Ghost will help bring things to your memory. And I can tell you that that's been the case. Things that I read once upon a time, and as I read through these texts, it's like, hey, wow, there's a correlation. Because some of it's uh, admittedly fairly obscure. So do we know for what reasons that some of these books never made it into <laughs> the canon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to refer, first of all, to the, you mentioned the 40-day literature and why we don't have more of what Christ taught during that time. 
when he, after he was resurrected, he appeared to them and he called them again to the work. And he says, return to Jerusalem until I come and endue you with power. Endue is a biblical word to endow, to endow you with wow. power. We would understand that, that he was going to give them the endowment. You read the Pistol of Sophia and the books of Yehu. That is exactly what he did. Really? So my That's assumption... Exactly my assumption was correct. It was temple stuff in there. Right. Things that was that are not to be had by the general public. And even in Pista Sophia and the books of Yehu, which were not uh, circulated for public consumption, you hear Christ constantly adjuring his disciples, do not um, present these ordinances to any but those who are worthy and desirous. Right. You know, there's certain books that I understood why they weren't put in the canon. Yeah. Uh, one is like Maccabees, right? I've read Maccabees a couple different times, and I love that book because yeah. it's somewhat reminiscent of, of uh, the, 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 the founding of America in the sense that it was, you know, the, the Maccabees fighting Greece, right? Antichrist Epiphanes. And and it's it's absolutely a book that that isn't kind to kings or tyrants. So yeah. I, can get, I can get why when they were compiling that, <laughs> that maybe certain rulers were like, yeah, we're going right. to that one out. Right. Because as I read through it, there was nothing in there that was necessarily heretical or anything like that. But you could tell if you were a if you were a sitting monarch, that book was not going to be kind to you. Yeah, but that's a, that's a wonderful question. In terms of the 66 texts that I cite in my book, almost all of them were unknown to those who were establishing the early canon in the first few centuries. Okay. Like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. Discovered in 1945-47. Nobody knew they existed. Right? Right. Or the Revelation of the Magi was not available to them. Uh, Pisa Sophia certainly not available to them right one of my favorites though i think has to be first enoch used to be called ethiopian enoch yep my understanding is that was considered for inclusion into the canon because uh well and parts of it are quoted you know a sentence at a time in the bible itself and referred to but they wanted to include it because it was apocalyptic prophecies about the end of the world and so it was in competition with the book of Revelation to be included. And Revelation is put at the end of the New Testament, not because it's chronologically last, but because it's apocalyptic. And when the uh, councils determined, decided that they wanted Revelation to be the apocalyptic text at the end of the New Testament, First Enoch fell out of favor because, of course, you can't have two apocalyptic texts, can you? Right? <laughs> Not unless I, you're Mormon. Yes, so. sarcastically, right? And so once it was rejected by the council, it fell into disfavor. And uh, existing copies were discarded, lost, destroyed. Until uh, the Scotsman James Bruce rediscovered First Enoch in Ethiopia. Multiple copies of it. Wow. In Ethiopic. And that's how we came to recover all of First Enoch. Before we dive into the the Pista Sophia, as as I was thinking about our conversation uh, this past week, a thought occurred to me. 
and and we remember i remember that there was a prophecy given that that at some point there would be other records that would be brought forth out yeah, of obscurity and, and, I, it, and i couldn't help but wonder if these are part of that not all of it but part of that right <laughs> that because they're <laughs> discovered later and they absolutely are are testifying not just to the divinity of christ but you know they back up a lot of what joseph says right i mean so yeah, it's i couldn't help but wonder to myself if that's not part of that fulfillment of prophecy well that's also part of the reason why i'm investigating it I'm, as i replied to one of the naysayers on my web page the book web page who um you know they i i don't want to guess about uh their reasons it could be a cop-out that the Bible is really all they want. That's all they need. So, uh, sola scriptura is the term. The Bible is all we need, and that's all we'll ever need, and we don't need any more. And the Book of Mormon mocks that by saying, a Bible, a Bible. We already have a Bible. We have no more need of a Bible. And God says, do not I speak to all of my children, all nations of the earth? And I always will. Of course, there's more scripture to come forth. But my question is, if there were more of the word of God, and you love the word of God, why wouldn't you want to check it out? Right. You no, know? right. I mean, Even if there's a chance that's God's word, I want to read it. Or or not just and, and I think that probably because of, of the time we live in, you know, that there's this idea of just you either take everything or nothing, right? So yeah. So yeah. people will look at the apocrypha and be like. Uh, you know that's it's too dicey or whatever instead of maybe putting in the time to go through it and and kind of mine out those gems of knowledge and testimony yeah yeah, yeah. so awesome so tell us about the christus uh, excuse me the pistis sophia real quick do I'll we have it a, oh no, go that? ahead no, go ahead do we, do we have an idea who the author is no really the, the pistis sophia it's a great mystery and yet it is unquestionably authentic because of the form it was discovered in. <clears throat> the majority of Pistis Sophia is a dialogue between Jesus and his male and female disciples after his resurrection, wherein he reveals the higher mysteries. Lots of them. It exists in a single Coptic manuscript of 174 leaves of parchment. It was discovered in 1773, it was written possibly between the third and the fourth centuries of the common era, third and fourth centuries after Christ. So it's very early. It's on ancient, authentic papyrus. It's not a copy. I mean, it could have been a copy of something even sure. earlier. And it's written in Coptic. So there's no question regarding its age and its authenticity. <laughs> How it ended up in a in 1773, <clears throat> a guy by the name of Dr. Askew um, discovered it at one of these London booksellers. And at this point, only God knows how it got there from wherever it was. Right? Wow. We don't know that. <clears throat> Whoever wrote it, it's like a first-person account as they're describing the questions that are asked by Mary. She asks a lot. And Peter and John, and various disciples asking questions of the Savior and the Savior's uh, response in first-person language. 
and it's extensive. <clears throat> so that's what I know about it. It was translated <clears throat> into English for the first time in 1921. So Joseph would have no access to this, Joseph Smith. He'd have no access Correct. to this. He'd have no way of knowing what it is. Exactly. Not a clue. And in fact, of the 66 texts that I cite in my book, he had access to none of them. Jeez. None of them. They were all discovered well after his lifetime and, and or translated into English. There is one possible exception. First Enoch was translated into English for the first time in 1820. In England. In England. And it was rejected at the time as being heretical. So you tell me the chances of Joseph Smith, prior to the publication of the Book of Mormon in 1830, stumbling across an English translation of First Enoch in Palmyra, New York. Yeah. Rural, rural upstate New York. Yeah. And look, the, this is a time, too, when Joseph is living that books aren't exactly cheap or oh, no. a staple, right? I well, mean, they're, they're a luxury. It's interesting that this idea about First Enoch has been, Enoch has been put forth uh, by sincere individuals trying to come up with a, a, a logical explanation of how Joseph Smith could have known all of these things that he shouldn't have known for a man of his time. And the first thing they're going to is, well, he must have had access to First Enoch, which, although it does have a lot of LDS corollaries, it's but a very, very small fraction of everything that he revealed to the world. Right. Very small fraction. Right. Um, so that's mm. a very interesting conundrum. Let's you know, the other thing ab about the Pista Sophia that I find just fascinating is that uh, unlike the New Testament, where we don't really get, uh, you know, firsthand Jesus speaking a lot, right? Yeah. It, this this seems to be a little bit different right this this seems to be a little more you, you can hear his voice right i don't know how else to put it you can hear his voice as he's talking and it's unlike the gospels in the sense of it, it he he's ringing through i don't know if that's a fair assessment on that or not i like that i would describe it it's it's more intimate <clears throat> yes because it's, <clears throat> and the other thing I love about it, Jesus Christ in the New Testament intentionally taught in parables mm -hmm. because he was speaking to a mixed audience and his mission was not yet finished on the earth. He had not yet made the atonement, right? Right. And so he intentionally disguised the truth from the unbelievers by teaching these vast and deep, profound concepts in these simple stories. It would go over the heads of the unbelievers and those who had designs against him. But for those who were in tune with the spirit, they would understand what he was telling them, at least at some level. <clears throat> in the Epistle of Sophia, he tells his disciples straight up, now that my mission is finished, ask me whatever you want, and I will teach you openly. I will answer directly without parables. Wow. And that's what he does. Is that where the where where it opens up at? Is he's resurrected, he's appeared to his disciples, and now it's it's hey, get ready for some bigger stuff. 
Yes and no. Episosophia uh, is essentially two different accounts. The first account, which is about the first third of the book, is about Sophia. Sophia is Greek for wisdom. And in that first third, so this is different from the question and answer section that I've referred to uh, later. <clears throat> Sophia is not as interesting to me, but still very interesting. Her story, and outside of the plan of salvation, it doesn't make a lot of sense relative to the, the restored gospel. But when you look at the, the arch of the story of Sophia, who she is, what she wants, what she does, Apparently, she was in the, the realm of the invisibles, right? Mm -hmm. We would call that the spirit world. Right. She sees the kingdom of God, and she desires to be like that. And she's deceived by this lion-faced power, which would be the devil, Satan, who exists in the region of chaos, which we would call the telestial realm. She descends. She leaves her paired one, by the way. She's paired with someone. She leaves him and descends to chaos in pursuit of this uh, lion-faced power. And, of course, it's Satan and his followers who use that to deceive her. And when she arrives in chaos, they attempt to steal all of her power from her, her light. And in desperation, she cries out. She sings a prayer of desperation. Christ himself intervenes with a power that is unique that belongs uniquely to God and that in the Pisa Sophia calls it the light stream uh, in our oh. scriptures it's referred to as the pillar of light huh. it appears it appears and all of the evil forces that are assailing uh, Sophia fall away immediately Pisa Sophia informs us that they have no defense against this power and Christ saves her redeems her and exalts her. So in the really? end, she is able, yes. You think, well, what does that have to do with the plan of salvation? That's the story of the plan of salvation. As yeah. pre-mortal spirits, we wanted to be like God. We fell into, into the telestial realm to prove ourselves and are ultimately redeemed by Jesus Christ himself and exalted. Wow. Or given some degree of glory. But so it's a do you get the feeling that that Sophia is more of an allegory than an actual person? Oh, I it, it could be, but I don't know why she couldn't be literal. I don't I, know why she wouldn't be. You know, and I find it so interesting too that that the the main protagonist, if you will, in the story is is a woman, right? Which is unusual. For that time and place. That is right? true. That is true. And and I find it so fascinating. Um, and it really keeps in line with who the Savior is, right? Who's the first person he appears to? Oh, yes, to? for sure. For sure. You know, the first person he appears to is Mary. Uh, we can all make inferences on uh -huh. who that was. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely in keeping in with who Christ was, right? I think sometimes... Yeah. Sometimes I think we tend to paint Christ in pastel colors, and I don't <laughs> think we do him any justice historically when we do that, because this is a guy who is both figuratively and literally overturning the tables, not just of government, but of the religious structure of his day. And so he is, by all accounts, kind of kind of a uh, 
a rabble rouser in some sense, right? So well, he, he wasn't crucified for nothing. I mean, they right. were afraid of him because of the threat that he posed right. to their existing power structure. That's fascinating. So, and I agree with you. We tend to paint him in pastels, and I struggle with this. Ideally, we want to know Christ and have some sort of a personal understanding of him. But how do you comprehend the greatest being that's ever set foot on this planet? And who understands, who knows everything, who overcame death, who knows the pain and suffering of everyone and still loves us infinitely. I don't know how I can, I, how do I start to understand that, you know? But I, I love the scriptures that, that shed light on his persona to me, that he is, that he's not beyond our capacity to know and to love and to interact with our accounts like how the children flocked to him. He loved the children don't run to people they're afraid of, right? So he was must have been inviting and positive and kind. And, you know, I love that. Or in the Old Testament, where Jehovah says, I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. A lot of people get upset by that. That's a jealous was the translation of an ancient Hebrew word meaning uh, possessing deep and sensitive feelings. What was he telling him when he said, I'm a jealous God? He says, uh, I have feelings. You you hurt my feelings. <laughs> right. You know, that he's if and if he's has more knowledge, more power and more love than everybody else, he's also going to have more passion. Yeah, I love deeper. He feels more deeply. He hurts more deeply. That's something to consider. I mean, you know, and, and I think. I think in some ways, this is really the message of the restored gospel, right? Which is, you can know the Savior on a deeper level than what any of us, I think, give ourselves credit for. Well, I think we tend to shrink away because we know who we are, right? Deep down, we all know that our own faults. And, <laughs> and, and we, we, we shy away from him because we think, how can someone like that love something as fallen as I am? And, and we, we tend to, um, I think, intentionally shield ourselves from maybe some deeper um, relationship with the Savior when, when we do that, right? I think it's the perfect, unfortunately, it's the perfect weapon of the adversary. Oh, of course. And, and really, that was Joseph's message, too, right? Joseph said, I had my experience with the Lord, and guess what? You can, too. He was right? always reminding us of that. Yeah. And and so you have not only the Savior saying, I, I want some sort of a relationship with you. I want to be an integral part of your life. And you have Joseph testifying of that same thing. I had an experience. You can have a, a relationship with God. And so I, I find it interesting that that uh, that that we don't take advantage of that more. Well, my feeling on that is I. If you believe in the persona of Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, I know that he loves me, and I know that I don't have to shrink from him, even with my faults. I know that he wants to help me. But what I also understand is that for him to make this theophany, an appearance to me personally, uh, would most likely destroy me. Because yep. I am as yet unprepared to bear 
yep. the glory of his presence or to be accountable for that much knowledge because I'm not there yet. Yeah, yeah. So I have complete and utter trust that when I get to that point, if I get to that point in mortality, which is very rare, to receive that promise, which is a promise to all of us. I was just going to quote out of um, Doctrine and Covenants. Hang on. Scripturally, Joseph Smith, well, God, through Joseph Smith, laid out the means we can obtain that promise. This is a section 67, verse 10. Again, verily I say unto you, it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourselves before me, for you are not sufficiently humble, <laughs> the veil shall be rent and you shall see me and know that I am. Not with the carnal, neither natural mind, but with the spiritual, because the carnal flesh can't bear such glory. So he lays out, strip yourselves of jealousies and of fears and humble ourselves. Then he can and will appear to us. But then he says, in the meantime, verse 13, ye are not able to abide the presence of God now, neither the ministering of angels. I'm not even ready for that yet, which is a terrestrial order. Therefore, continue in patience until you are perfected. And in the meantime, and this is consistent with section 76. Section 76, the father ministers in the celestial, the son ministers to the terrestrial, yep. and the Holy Spirit ministers to the telestial. Well, that's exactly what we're doing here. It's yep. the same thing. Absolutely. <clears throat> so how does the question and answer period of the Pistis Sophia open up? Let me see. <clears throat> If I can see where it begins. This is referred to as the second book of Pisces Sophia. And then if I had more time, I would have had this, would have looked at this a little. Second, third, and fourth book. Um, not there, not there. It talks about so many things. I hear I am just tongue-tied again, but let me just tell you a little bit of what I've marked, starting with this second book, which is the account that follows the account of Sophia. <clears throat> he talks about the coats of skin, about life as being indestructible. It talks about light vestures. Uh, garments of light, we would call them. Um, uh, oh, my goodness. All right. We need to talk about this crazy thing. Okay. <clears throat> On page 156 of this, let's see. So this is the question. And Mary, for some reason, is the one asking most of the questions. I'm not the the uh, uh, and not the mother Mary, <clears throat> but the disciple Mary. <clears throat> she said, "My Lord and Savior, of what manner are the four and twenty invisibles, and of what type, or rather, of what quality are they, or of what quality is their light? The invisibles. I think she talked about the spirit beings, <clears throat> and he talks about that, and then." 
the question is asked, so let's see, where is it? Then he begins to describe to her um, the kingdom of God or kingdoms of God from the celestial to the terrestrial. He's, he's describing a map, a physical map of these kingdoms. <clears throat> and he's describing it in terms that they can understand. <clears throat> Now, let me preface this. If, if any of you are familiar with um, the book called The Kolob Theorem, some retired um, BYU professors put their heads together and propose a model, a cosmological model, physical location of the kingdoms of God. Wow. Now, how does that line up with what What's in 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 the Pista Sophia? Exactly. So any anyone familiar with the Kolob theorem will enjoy reading <clears throat> Pista Sophia pages one fifty six through one fifty eight. Because as I read this one night, in one of those rapturous moments, uh, you know I was either misled or inspired or something. And I would never promote this as gospel doctrine but uh, <clears throat> he says uh, and he describes these very he describes eight different regions most importantly he describes how each region appears from the next region so he starts at the region of chaos which is where we are we would call the telester realm the next region let me interject here. The difficult thing about reading the Pisces Sophia, and it took me second and third time through to understand it, is the terminology is slightly different. Right. When you start making the connections between chaos and telestial, etc., then it starts to really pop and come alive. <clears throat> um, the next region from chaos is called the rulers of the fate. Then will you see the glory in which they are. You will look at the whole world of man, how it will have the condition of a speck of dust for you because of the great distance it is from it. So from the region of the fate, chaos, or the world in which we stand, appears as a speck of dust. In hmm. astronomy, we know how far that is. So when, if we look up, uh, if, if we can look up at the night sky, we can see a star that is distinct all by itself. That star is closer to us than 4,000 light years. If we look at the night sky and we see the Milky Way, which looks like, a, like dust, right? that's because those stars are so distant, they appear as a speck of dust. That distance is known by astronomers as 4,000 light years. Wow. So if, if this is true, and if I'm interpreting this right, the next... Uh, the next kingdom or region from us as we approach God is 4,000 light years away. You know, and, and, and it goes on. Wait a minute. That's, that's one of those things that like boggles the mind, right? It's almost hard to comprehend that kind of distance because we're saying that it takes a, a, a ray of light 4,000 years 
to get yeah. to where we are. See, we we never see this the the stars as they are. We see them as as they were, they were right? Yeah. And and that it boggles my mind when I when when you stop to think about it and actually put it into perspective what that means. Now it, it, this gets worse, so stick with me. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, where do I start? Kolob theorem proposes that the celestial realm is the galactic core of the Milky Way galaxy. Okay. okay. The galactic core is between, is roughly 28,000 light years from Earth. Cool. 28,000. Or so. 20, yes, yes. And he, so we talked about the distance from chaos to the to the rulers of the faith. There are six other kingdoms, which means there are seven spaces between each of those kingdoms. And he uses exactly the same terminology that from the kingdom that's one kingdom up from the rulers of the faith, which he calls the 12 eons, it would appear as a speck of dust, which means, and he does that for all of them. So that means between these eight kingdoms, the last one being the inheritance, the right. exaltation, between each of these kingdoms is 4,000 light years. Wow. So let's do the math. 4,000 light years times seven, because there's seven spaces, 28,000 light years. Wow. I'm, so I'm, I'm like, what? Could this actually be so? Is he describing the inner Milky Way galaxy to his disciples, according to the call up there? Now, I apologize to people out there who think I've lost my mind, but this has been really fun to kind of try and put this together. Then it gets worse because he names those specific regions. And as you look at an annotated map of the uh, inner Milky Way galaxy, they just, and I'm not kidding, they just happen to coincide the names of those regions, describe those regions as we see them. Really? Yeah. So the uh, third region is called the 12 eons, the, or the region of the 12 invisibles. And as you look at that on an annotated map, to our eyes, nothing is there. Really? But if you look at a, you can look up um, hypothetical maps of dark matter concentrations right. in our galaxy. And that region is not empty. It's stuffed with dark matter. But then that go that leads into other stuff. You know, does dark matter correspond with this uh, spiritual creation of the world of spirits? But in any case, then it goes on. Thirteenth eon, the midst, the sixth region. He calls the region of the right. Hmm. And there is an arm of the galaxy called the the three kiloparsec arm, the near three, which, as we look at the galaxy from the top, goes off to the right. Wow, that's just, that's just crazy to me. The seventh kingdom is the treasury. Uh, the treasury is the halo of the galactic core. And then the inheritance is the galactic core itself, which is, again, 4,000 light years from the, the center of the, of the from, from, from the region of the halo. Right. So, which is, and to make sure I got this correct, and forgive me, I'm kind of slow, but this so, is a lot. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're thinking that that is the center of the Milky Way galaxy. According to the Kolob theorem, right that uh the throne of god is at the center which uh, that's what the doctrine and covenants teaches i am at the center of all things 
You know, and and it's interesting if you look back. I, <clears throat> I'm always a big believer in the fact that if the gospel is true and this really is a restoration, we should see certain echoes of that remnants of the past, right? Remnants of it. And when you talk to a lot of Native American cultures, especially in Central America, they they make they call it the Great Rift, right? Which you can see how they would call the Milky Way that because it does. It looks like it's torn open. But they say that that's where we came from, and that's where we ultimately should go if we're righteous. The right? Lakota Sioux. I was told that the Lakota Sioux. Their legend is that when you die, your spirit travels that pathway which is the milky way right and just before it gets to the by the way at nighttime right now after sundown you can see the galactic core yeah you can't see it the rest of the year because of the orientation of the earth but imagine going out at night i just did this last night i came out of a, a job i'd been working late <clears throat> this is out in paragona where, and the stars were very bright. And I looked up and I thought, oh, is it too late to see? No, sure enough. You, you look up, you see the Milky Way as it traverses and as it goes down toward the southern horizon. There's a part of it that looks like it breaks off and goes to the right. Hmm. The Lakota Sioux tradition says, if you take the wrong path, you, you're, you, lead, you're, you go to oblivion. Wow. But if you follow the, the, part, the path that goes to the left, it will take you to the great spirit. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the sort of stuff that, that you just look at. And, and again, if, if we, we should expect to see those remnants everywhere. And when we that's do, true. it should be such a testimony builder to us, especially as these other <laughs> things come out. Right. Oh, now yeah. I, I would preface that with ultimately you want your testimony based on Christ and on his atonement, but there's nothing wrong with finding these other things to help bolster. And well, I, I look at it a little differently. Jesus Christ is the reason for everything. He's the reason we exist at all. He is the reason we have hope. He's the only reason we've ever had hope, right? Of eternal life. But a testimony, I, I think we, I prefer to think of testimony as it's thought of in a court of law. It's your witness first-hand information what you know right right and as joseph smith taught you'll only be saved as fast as you gain knowledge in the mm -hmm. end we hopefully should have a testimony a witness first-hand knowledge of everything yeah on all of which uh we, yeah because we should know all truth eventually well and then the book of john says that eternal life is to know god right how do you know yeah. god without knowing what he knows so we're all on that on that path to be sure. And I'm with you. Every time I learn something new, I mean it all. The there is the plan of salvation circumscribes everything. There's right. nothing you can learn that's outside of the plan of salvation. The trick is being able to see it in relationship to the plan. Yeah, I believe it was Brigham Young who said that that all truth belongs to the gospel. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I I firmly believe that. You know, something else when talking about stars and constellations, there was some recent studies done that show that that even the great pyramids seem to be lined up 
it well, accords with certain stars, right? Yes, yes, yes. And and which we should expect to see if Abraham was really there. And as it says in the Pearl of Great Price, he teaches some of the Egyptians about some of these things, right? Well, which which is confirmed in ancient Egyptian documents that are not in the Pearl of Great Price. Right. Everybody laughed at Joseph Smith and the poor Mormons for believing something so stupid. And lo and behold, that legend is a, is a part of ancient Egyptian lore. Yep. That Abraham did teach them astronomy. Well, that's yep. crazy. Yep. Absolutely. So what else is in the Christus, the, the Pistis Sophia, excuse me? It talks over and over again that when you, when you traverse the kingdoms to get back to, to God, or to get to God, you have to pass through these kingdoms because they're concentric circles, right? If you're in chaos, in order to get to the center of the galaxy, you have to pass through these other kingdoms. And they will not let you pass unless you know certain words and certain signs and certain tokens. And it says that in the in the Yes. Text. Oh Holy yes. Cow. Yes. And it goes like it's it gets worse. Brigham Young says something so fascinating that we that the temple teaches us uh the information necessary to walk past the guards that stand as the angels who stand as sentinels. Right. Right. Yep. That, that, to let you pass by these veils. I'm going to read to you Oh, let's see, where's a good one? Well, it is on page 162. And the guard of the veil of the great light guards this veil will let you pass if you know uh, what he's trying to teach them. And, that, and that's repeated, I don't know how many times in this text, because it's progressive from one kingdom to the next. Um, let's see. And they're referred to as seals and as mysteries. <clears throat> the souls will all come. This is page 164. Every one at the time when he will receive the mysteries. And all the rulers who have repented will pass through and come into the region of the midst. And then the midst is the fifth region. So they're progressing through. And they've arrived at the midst. And those of the midst will baptize them and give unto them the spiritual unction and seal them with the seals of their mysteries. Hmm. And everyone giveth unto them his seal of his mystery, and they pass into the interior of them all and go to the region of the inheritances of the light. Where, oh yeah, which is the ultimate destination. <clears throat> and everyone bideth in the region up to which he hath received mysteries in the inheritances of the light. So you cannot, you can, the region you will end up in is the region uh, for which you've received the mysteries. And you can't go beyond that unless you've received the mysteries of the higher kingdoms. Okay. So that now this, this ha, ha, has me wondering about a few things. <laughs> One is, is let's say someone dies without receiving all the mysteries. <laughs> Are they able, does it say anything in there about them being able to obtain those mysteries? Now, people are going to think, people are going to think we rehearsed this. Because that is exactly what the Pistol Sophia says. And uh, let me find it. That's why I wrote this book. Oh, let's see. In my book, under Vicarious Ordinances, it quotes the Pistol Sophia. Page 332, it says... 
this is Mary Magdalene asking the question again. Jesus answered and said unto her, Indeed, it possesseth a one and only mystery. Yet that mystery constitutes three mysteries. Well, this is quite lengthy. Let me find out where. So he talks about five mysteries for the endowed. That's a significant number. Right. In terms of the yep. covenants. You with me? Yep. I don't want to say too much. And it says, if you accomplish its mystery, the first mystery, the most important one, all together, and stand us and accomplish it in finally in all of its figures, then dost thou come straightway out of thy body, become a great light stream, and pass through all the regions of the rulers and all the regions of the light, while all are in fear of that soul, and it cometh to the region of its kingdom. You have to read that a couple of times. What it's saying is, if you've accomplished the ultimate mystery, the first mystery, when you die, you become a great light stream. What's the light stream? It's the pillar of light. People in these NDEs, when they die, they describe this, they call it the tunnel of light. Right. It's the same thing. Yeah. So you join this light stream, and because you know the ultimate, ultimate mystery, right, you pass by all of these kingdoms, and they all stand aside until you come into the region of the first mystery. <clears throat> Let's see. Now, here's this paragraph. But <clears throat> if that man hath received no mysteries and is not sharing in the words of truth, if he who accomplisheth that mystery speaketh that mystery over the head of a man who cometh forth out of the body and who hath received no mysteries of light and shareth not in the words of truth, amen, I say unto you, that man, if he cometh forth out of the body, will be judged in no region of the rulers, nor can he be chastised in any region at all. Nor fire, nor will the fire touch him because of the great mystery of the ineffable, uh, which is in him. <clears throat> so it tells us that, <clears throat> and then the uh, fifth paragraph of this. So it says, if there's a man who is a righteous man, his spirit comes out of his body or he dies. But he hasn't been a part of the word of truth. He hasn't heard it. it tells us what you can do. <clears throat> the man who hath come forth out of the body, if the name of this mystery is pronounced on his behalf, they will hasten quickly to bring him over and to hand him over one to another until they bring him before the Holy Spirit. And the Virgin of Light, the Holy Spirit, will seal him with a higher seal, which is, and then they leave it blank. Hmm. So what the higher seal is, they don't put in this text because you're wow. not supposed to. Right? right. And in that month, Will she let him lie down into the righteous body, which will find the Godhead in truth and the higher mystery, so that he inherit the light kingdom? Wow. So let me back up again. So if the name of this mystery is pronounced on his behalf. Vicarious work. Vicarious work. He will receive the benefit of it. Wow. Ta-da. And it says it again. And also, wow. I didn't remember that. The shepherd of Hermas also talks about that and the tripart tractate also talked about so there are four references ancient references to vicarious works wow does the does the pista sophia has have anything to say about marriage let's find out um i my i have I would, to say 
Go ahead. I'd be, I'd be interested to to see if it has anything to say about like eternal marriage or something like that. You know, I'm so glad I wrote this book. <laughs> and I tell you why. I think I've confessed this before. My friends would ask me because I've been studying these things my entire adult life and they ask what's in them. And frankly, there's so much that it's just it's just swimming. I'm just swimming in it. Right. I can't can't possibly remember it. And so I put it down. And it's all here. And it's wonderful because I, now I don't have to remember. <clears throat> uh, my favorite reference to marriage comes from the Gospel of Philip, which is from the Nag Hammadi Library, which was discovered on the upper Nile near Nag Hammadi in Egypt. The same year that the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Gosh. You can believe that. And um, the Gospel of Philip, talks about the mirrored bridal chamber. I'm quoting precisely. Whoa. And that the mirrored bridal chamber is where all of these ordinances have to be performed in this life. So it, it makes, you know, and you think about, you know, mirrors inside temples, right? Where you get well, that, that, that eternal. The effect. mirrored bridal chamber. How else would you describe it? So the Gospel of Philip succinctly says, Great is the mystery of marriage, for without it, the world would not exist. Hmm. Now, there's so many, there, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, it, I, I think that might even speak to, you know, God's marital situation. Well, so, hello. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, marriage is the means of the propagation of life. Yep. In the human species. Yep. Which is the most sacred thing of all to God. That's why he gets up in the morning to bring to pass immortality and eternal life of man. Yep. How do we do that, right? By giving us sequential births. He gave us a spiritual birth. He's given us a mortal birth. He will give us an immortal birth. Right. As we enter each of these phases. Uh, let's see if I can find ceilings three oh so let's see if that's where that is someday probably not in this life i'll have this whole book committed to memory here we go gospel of philip page 152 in the naga library indeed one must utter a mystery now mystery is code word for name signs tokens that sort of stuff it goes on the father of everything oh i can't read that one here that's a little too crazy Come on, you can't do that to the audience. You can't do that to the audience. You can do it. Oh my gosh. All right. I didn't mean to go here. In the uh, a New Testament apocryphal text entitled The Acts of, or no, The Questions of Bartholomew. That's the title of this text. Uh, Peter and the apostles are sitting around with Mary. And one of them, I can see this nudges the other. Hey, ask Mary how Jesus was conceived. Like, no, I'm not going to ask her. You ask her, you know. So they finally ask her. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she says, come and sit down around me and hold my arms while I speak to you so that I'm not overcome. And she just starts to describe to them in the questions of Bartholomew. She was serving in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and God appears to her and 
the first thing he does is he washes her with a, what she called it a, a dew, and then cleaned her with his robe. And then from his robe produced bread and wine upon the altar. And they partook of the bread and wine on the altar. As she's beginning to tell them how the Savior was conceived, right? Right. At that point, the Savior himself appears and forbids her from telling them any more. <laughs> wow. Okay, that's questions of Bartholomew. Now, here's the Gospel of Philip. <clears throat> the Father of everything united with the Virgin who came down, and a fire shone for him on that day. He appeared in the great bridal chamber. Therefore, his body came into being on that very day. It left the bridal chamber as one who came into being from the bridegroom and the bride. Wow. I don't understand all of that, but it's highly suggestive of what the questions of Bartholomew was leading to. Absolutely it is. And and right. I, I find it interesting that Mary says she was in, in the in the questions of, uh, excuse me. Questions of Bartholomew, yeah. Well, yeah, questions of Bartholomew that she was serving in the temple. Yeah. And then in the other book, it makes in the Holy of Holies. Yeah. Yeah. It makes reference to the bridal chamber. The same right? thing that that's the where God thing. appeared yeah. to her. Yep. Absolutely. Crazy. Okay. Now getting back to marriage. Okay. I was, I really did not mean to go there. If I get excommunicated because of that, it's your fault. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I I I will tell you what if if anything bad happens I will be the first one there to take the blame. Trust <laughs> me. Trust me, they'll give it to me before you. You're Let's good. go on. Let's go on. Gospel <laughs> of Philip page 158. Bridegrooms and brides belong to the bridal chamber. No one shall be able to see the bridegroom with the bride unless he become such an one. Huh. This is symbolic. Who's yeah. the bridegroom? Christ. Who's the bride? The church. No one can see the unification, the second coming of Christ and his church, unless they have been sealed. Bride, right. and, bride and groom in the marriage, marriage chamber. <clears throat> uh, page 159 of the Gospel of Philip. Oh, my goodness. And it goes, oh, and there's the questions of Bartholomew I was just quoting. The mysteries of truth are revealed though in type and image hmm. in the temple is that true the bridal chamber however remains hidden it is the holy in the holy or we would say the holy, holy of holies. holies the veil at first concealed how god controlled the creation but when the veil is rent and the things inside are revealed this house will be left desolate or rather it will be destroyed he's describing the second coming Right. When he unveils his face to us, the earth will be burned at his coming. If some belong to the order of the priesthood, they will be able to go within the veil with the high priest. But we shall go in there by means of lowly types and forms of weakness. That's what we learn in the temple, the forms and the types. We, right. It's not the full glory. They are lowly indeed when compared with the perfect glory. There is glory which surpasses glory. There is power which surpasses power. Therefore, the perfect things have opened to us together with the hidden things of truth, 
the Holy of the Holies were revealed and the bridal chamber invited us in. Wow. And now we begin to see this, the deep symbolism of the importance of the bridal chamber. When in Ephesians, when Paul is trying to describe marriage to us to help us understand the importance of marriage, he compares it to how Christ feels about us right. and vice versa. In the Old Testament, when, he's, when God's trying to explain how he feels about us, he compares it to a marriage. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. <clears throat> the last one from uh, Gospel of Philip, page 160. But the mysteries of that marriage are perfected rather in the day and the light. Neither that day nor its light, neither that day nor its light ever sets. So we're talking about the heavenly realm. If anyone becomes a son of the bridal chamber, he will receive the light. If anyone does not receive it while he is here in mortality, he will not be able to receive it in the other place. Did that just say that those ordinances have to be performed in mortality? Yep. Who else believes that? All right. He who will receive the light will not be seen, nor can he be detained by the guards at the veils. And none shall be able to torment a person like this, even while he dwells in the world. And again, when he leaves the world, he has already received the truth in the images, okay. signs, tokens. The world has become the eternal realm, for the eternal realm is fullness for him. This is the way it is. It is revealed to him alone, not hidden in the darkness and the night, but hidden in a perfect day and a holy light. Wow. Hugh Nibley said, talking about these extra canonical writings, he said, entire, let's see, trying to quote him exactly. Entire libraries are bursting forth. No, entire libraries are coming forth, amazing and confounding Jewish and Christian scholars alike, but bursting with good news for the Latter-day Saints who ignore them completely. Uh, Isn't that so nibbly? It is nibbly. So that's for, for very example, nibbly. For example, is, is, is we're reading in Gospel of Philip about the bridal chamber, right? Who else understands that? Nobody. The, yeah. Except for the endowed. Right. Right. Yeah. And that and this so in that part of my book, for 50 pages, and I, uh, temple rites is what I title it. And I and of course, because of the sacred nature of it, I can't uh, speak of it commonly, right? Right. So I preface the whole section. 50 pages of temple rites due to their sacred nature extra canonical references to temple rites will be cited without explanation trusting the initiated reader to make their own connections so the initiated reader would be someone who's familiar with the with temple, temple rites yep and they're they're pretty obvious i have to say um so you know all the other entries in the book i'll i'll make the connection this is what the lds teach and this is what the documents say. Right. But the temple rites, I don't. No, that makes sense. Out of respect. Sense. Yep, absolutely. That makes sense. What else do you see out of the, the Pista Sophia that, that just blows you blows your mind? Because if it blows your mind, I, it's guaranteed to blow my mind. <laughs> you have spent way more time on this than, than I've ever dreamed of doing. It gives a, a specific description of outer darkness. Um it says that members of the higher kingdoms 
can descend to the lower kingdoms, but the lower kingdoms cannot ascend to the higher kingdoms. Which Joseph clearly laid out. Surprise, surprise. Um, talks about seals. It talks about opposition. It, does, it doesn't say marriage specifically that I recall, but it does talk about the paired ones repeatedly. Really? The paired ones. And Sophia had a pair, the paired ones. So yes, the couple thing is here. Um, keywords, types, um, the initiated, people who are initiated mysteries become fellow kings, he says. Vicarious work again, three degrees of kingdoms, three right. levels he talks about. Oh my gosh, here's an, this is, oh my gosh, how do we start this one? Just jump in, bro. So the, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Abraham, says that a day on Kolob, Kolob is not where God dwells. It is the star close closest to where God dwells. To the celestial. And that God reckons time by Kolob. Because there's no time where God is. But on Kolob, a day is equal to? A thousand years. Right? So a year on Kolob is how long on earth? 365,000 years. So a Kolob year is 365,000 earth years. So I'm reading Epistle Sophia, the second book, page 203. <clears throat> Mary again comes forward and says, My Lord, how many years of the years of the world is a year of the light? Hmm. So how many years here is a year in the year of the light? Which presupposes some understanding that it's not the same on her part. Right. Jesus answered, and I'm quoting, and said unto Mary, a day of the light is a thousand years in the world. So that, so that 36 myriads of years and a half myriad of years of the world are a single year of the light. A myriad is a thousand. Wow. And a, and a half myriad is 500. So he just said, so that 365,000 years uh, of the world are a single year and the year of light holy cow and again for for joseph to be able to hit that bullseye is just i know absolutely astounding these questions these questions are appropriate questions for 21st century people like you and me right and i have to keep pinching myself and reminding me no 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 this was a person we know for fact because of the age of the document asking these questions 2000 years ago yeah they were in they were enlightened of course they would be they were taught by the savior but that was that's crazy um oh so he he's done teaching about the mysteries and he says the mysteries of these three allotments of the light are exceedingly numerous you shall find them in the two great books of you y e u so he refers them. If you want the details, if you want the script of what I'm telling you about, you'll find them in the two great books of you. We have those books. They're called the first and the second books of Yehu, J-E-U. And they're included in my book. It's the script. It's the temple script. Really? When you get to this veil, say this name. Make this sign, make this, and you will pass. 
although it leaves it blank. Again, it doesn't tell you in the script. Or it writes some nonsensical Greek symbols because they don't want to publish that and make everybody, you know, and give those sacred tokens to everybody. The right. Books of the age. Was the was the Pista Sophia originally in Greek? No. No, it, it exists in Coptic. Right. Which I guess some would call an Egyptian shorthand or Yeah. I wish I knew more about that. The the Coptics were were uh, a, a sect of Christianity inside Egypt, correct? Right. But I mean the text itself is Coptic. So it's an ancient text on ancient papyrus. Um, so there's no doubt as to its authenticity, and it is it's crazy. All right, going on. What else, right? Let's see. You know how um Joseph Smith taught some extraordinary things regarding matter. Right. There's no such thing as immaterial matter. Right. It is just too fine or too pure to be seen by the unaided eye. And that matter is eternal. It cannot be created nor destroyed. Right? Right. And that creation was not creation ex nihilo out of nothing. That creation was an organization of preexistent matter. Correct. Yep. Which we this learned is, in the temple as the well. This Sophia goes on and on and on about matter about how the various kingdoms are in conflict over matter and the possession of matter and how all have to contribute to the kingdom of God certain amounts of matter so that the plan can continue. And it says that we are all created from the same matter and that the purpose of this plan is to purify. Let's see if I can read that. You are in the great sufferings and great afflictions in your being poured from one into another of different kinds of bodies of the world. And after all of these sufferings in this world, you have struggled of yourselves and fought, having renounced the whole world and all the matter therein, so the material things, right? And you have not left off seeking until you found all the mysteries of the kingdom of the light, which have purified you and made you into refined light, exceedingly purified, and ye have become purified light. So the purpose of this life is to purify us, purify our spirits, and that our matter ultimately will be purified as a result. Oh, goodness. The plan of salvation, in the words of Jesus, page 208. For the sake of the race of men, because it is material, I have torn myself asunder, and brought unto them all the mysteries of the light, that I may purify them, for they are the refuse of the whole matter of their matter. Else would no soul of the total race of men have been saved, and they would not be able to inherit the kingdom of the light if I had not brought unto them the purifying mysteries. Wow. The plan of salvation in different words. I love that. See if you recognize this. This is Pista Sophia, page 222. I say unto you, he who shall keep in life and save only one soul, he will receive yet another dignity. He who shall save many souls will receive many other dignities for the souls which he hath saved. Wow. Wow. Goes right. Doctrine Just and covenants. Hand in hand with the doctrine and covenants. At section 18, 18. Yep. verse 16. Wow. Word for word. When I read yeah. stuff like that, my head spins. And you understand why people say, 
Joseph Smith must have had a secret copy of the Epistle of Sophia because he's quoting from it. And you begin to understand how the Book of Mormon can quote from the New Testament. Right. Because it's coming to the sources the same. All right. Speaking of the souls who have not, quoting, have not yet completed their number of circuits in the changes of the body. A circuit is like a revolution of the world. Right. right? They have not completed the number of days. The receivers of you, uh, Y-E-U, you, keep them with them until they perform for them the mystery of the ineffable and remove them into a good body, which shall find the mysteries of the light and inherit the light kingdom. Children who die. Right. That they have not completed their days. They will be kept by you until the mysteries, the ordinances are performed on their behalf. And then they shall be resurrected into a good body and shall find the mysteries of light. Wow. And they also shall inherit the light kingdom. Wow. Who else teaches that? Stupid yeah. Mormons. Oh, the cup of forgetfulness. What is that a reference to? Also known as the veil of forgetfulness. Yeah. Who believes that? Well, nobody, unless you believe in a pre-mortal existence. When a soul is about to come down through the rulers of fate into chaos, to the celestial to, world. To, yeah, to the earth. The rulers of, of that region, of that head, give the soul a cup of forgetfulness filled with all the different desires and forgetfulness. And straight away, when that soul shall drink out of the cup, it forgetteth all of the regions to which it hath previously gone. And that cup of water forgetfulness becometh body outside the soul, and etc., etc. So um, when we come into this world, we drink of the cup of forgetfulness so that we don't recall where we've been. That's an interesting teaching. You know, so many of these teachings, they, they almost seem to not just back up what Joseph said or back up the gospel, but they go into greater depth, right? They, 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 do, they do. They expand on it. They expand on it, right? Rather than just a veil, I, I'm almost picturing an ordinance that takes place right before birth for a soul, right? I, I don't know how else you'd explain. Am I off base by calling it an ordinance or? Oh, no. I, I, no. I just, I look at it and I'm like, it's just amazing that not only does it back up what Joseph said, but it expands on it. It talks about ordinances on the other side. And that's, that's incredible. That, that falls right in the line with what Joseph taught. And it is revolutionary in, in Christendom, right? Well, take, for example, the significance of names. Yeah. Right? When we're born into this world, we're given a name that we should be known by throughout our mortal life. We know that name is significant because we use it again when we make covenants in the temple. Yep. Right? Yep. But then at the age of eight, if we're worthy and desirous or thereafter, we take upon ourselves another name. Name of Christ. Jesus Christ. Yep. Right? In each time we take a name, it's symbolic of a step in the process of approaching God. So yeah. when we were born, we get a name signifying our entrance into mortality. When we take upon ourselves the covenant of baptism, we take upon his name. When we go to the temple and take upon further covenants, we receive a new name there. Yeah. And then we're told in the Doctrine, Covenants, and Revelation that when we uh, enter the celestial realm, 
will be given a, a white stone that will have a new name written on that. People suppose, oh, it's the name we got in the temple. I don't believe that for an instant. Right. It's going to be the name signifying that we have entered the celestial realm and received the stone. Yeah. The final step. And I also strongly be believe we had a pre-mortal name signifying yeah. that phase or the, the, the first inheritance. And I believe when we pass into the next, into the world of spirits, we'll receive a name. If not the name from our pre-mortal existence, I don't know. But the significance, so when you talk about ordinances for various stages of the process, of course. Mine house is a house of order. Nothing happens willy-nilly in the right. kingdom of God. Because every soul is critical and important to him. The worth of souls is great. That's the, this whole war. This whole war of good and evil is over souls. So yes, they're accounting for each and every soul. And this and each and every step of the process for each and every soul. Uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, we have a, uh, a this teaching that's not taught about very much. It's that death, the time of our death is appointed. We have agency within our lives, but we don't choose when we die. Right. Even those who take their lives, that's foreknown, you know. But the um, Peso Sophia says the same thing. The rulers of the myths look after uh, the evil spirits and also destiny and leadeth the man until it hath him slain through the death appointed unto him. Hmm. All right. This one blows me away. Here we are. We're now to the fifth book of Sophia. Came to pass when the Lord had been crucified and risen up from the dead on the third day. And he gathered his disciples around him and said, oh, anyway, at that time, he stood with his disciples and made invocation with this prayer, saying, hear me, my father, father of all fatherhood, boundless light. And while Jesus said this, Thomas, Andrew, James, and Simon, the Canaanite, were in the west with their faces turned toward the east. Philip and Bartholomew were on the south, turned toward the north. And the rest of the disciples and the women disciples stood back of Jesus, and Jesus stood at the altar. So they were standing in a circle. In a, yeah, in a prayer circle. And Jesus Holy was in their God. midst in the altar. And he made invocation, turning himself toward the four corners of the world with his disciples, who were all clad in linen garments. Wow. Okay, so real quick, where does this take place at then? Because they're talking about an altar. or Where, where are they at? I don't know. And I don't know that, it, I don't recall it saying exactly where. Wow. Well, no, 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 no. Actually, I did. At that time, Jesus stood with his disciples on the water of the ocean and made invocation with this prayer saying, standing on the water of the ocean? Hmm. Help me out. Oh, here's one. This will get you going. Let's see. Jesus said, there are the he's talking about the regions in the way of the midst, which is the fifth region. I love this. Throughout Epistle Sophia, we see this. For it came to pass, and it came to pass yeah. over and over again. People say, Why does that happen so much in the Book of Mormon? The closer you get to ancient Egyptian texts, the more of this you're going to see. Like this 2000 year old document, uh. stupid Joseph Smith. For it came to pass when the rulers of Adamus mutinied and persistently 
persistently practice Congress, procreating rulers, archangels, blah, 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 that you, the father of my father, came forth from the right and bound them to the fate spirit. The significant part of that, Jesus is talking about his father's father. Oh, <laughs> oh showing the genealogy of the gods, so to speak. Of his father. And who else taught about that? Joseph, Joseph Smith. Smith. Yep. Yep. That, that Jesus, that our father was once a Christ. Yep. Yeah. Just like Holy Jesus. cow. Oh, Baptist. Oh, Melchizedek. Ooh, what does it say about Melchizedek? By, by the way, Melchizedek occupies quite a few pages in my book. Imagine that. Jesus said, once indeed, the father of my father, that is you, Y-E-U, is the foreminder of all of the rulers, gods, and powers who have risen out of the matter of the light of treasury. And Zorokothera Melchizedek is the envoy to all the lights which are purified in the rulers, leading them into the treasury of light. These two alone are the great lights, and their ordinance is that they go down to the rulers and purify them. And that, I don't know, the Zorokothera of Melchizedek carrieth away the purification of the world. I'm sorry, I skipped a page. The purification of the lights, which they have purified in the rulers, and leadeth them to the treasury of life. So, Melchizedek is a name, Melchizedek, but as we know about names, they are also callings or offices. Exactly. Yep. Yep. They those those names that that we tend to assign that we tend to assign personality to. Right. Attached are really to offices. Right. Exactly. Much well, like. Now I, I wouldn't say it's binary. It's not one or the other. There was right. an Adam. There was an Elisha. Right. But but those names have significance in terms of representing um, the performance of those individuals and others who perform the same function. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. In your estimation, what do you get a feeling of an overarching theme within the Pistis Sophia? <laughs> um, no. Okay. Pastor Sophia is um, 325 pages long. It would be like asking you, what's the overarching theme of the Book of Mormon? I mean, we could have thought the Book of Mormon is specifically as a witness that Christ is the Savior of the whole world, right? Right. Uh, but the Pistis Sophia is more far-ranging than that because of its, it's a question and answer session with the smartest being who ever lived. Who's right. answering openly? So it is all over the place. I mean, from describing in cosmological terms God's kingdom to when a spirit enters the body. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah. I suppose you could say, in that same way, it's dem it is a witness of the of the omniscience and the omnipotence of Jesus Christ. Mm. It is a witness of that, to be sure. I mean, even the first book, where it's just about Sophia falling and being saved, it's Christ who saves her. And it's Christ who's been resurrected. It's Christ who gives us these ordinances. It's Christ who provides the means for these ordinances to even function. And it's Christ who knows all and is able to answer everyone's questions. Wow. Do we have any 
idea historically how this book of uh, this this book was used amongst ancient Christians? No, I, I no. It was unknown to the world until 1773. The thing I uh, I don't like about how it's characterized. People believe it, that it is a Gnostic text, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, the right. Gnostics, which is an ancient sect of Christianity. They also say that the Nag Hammadi Library is also, they are also Gnostic texts. Nowhere in any of those texts does, does it say, this is a Gnostic text. Gnostic is a, a Greek word, gnosis, meaning mystery knowledge. or knowledge yep and the gnostics were renowned for having mysteries so we can see why these books are, oh they're gnostic texts and people tend to just discount them you know anything associated with gnosticism is that doesn't count because it's not christian which is short-sighted and narrow-minded and completely discounts the historical value of these texts <clears throat> the other problem is the Gnostic religion as it exists today, in my view, bears absolutely no resemblance to the Pistosophia. Right. Right. And why no. should it? Why no. should it? It's 2,000 years later, which gives Gnosticism or these Gnostic works by association a bad rap. Which is, as you've, as we've read through, just kind of perused through it tonight together. You can see how invaluable this text is. Right. I mean, it, yeah, it's an incredible curiosity, but it is it's probably the deepest in terms of doctrinal content, the deepest of all the texts I've ever read. Well, yeah, because it, it's, it's diving into so much. I've never right. had to read the text three times before getting it. Never. Until Pisa Sophia. Then I'm like, wow, I need to read that again. And the third time, it all started to gel. Why do you think people tend to stay away from texts such as this Pistis Sophia? <laughs> Number one, it's a cop-out. So many people in or out of the, our faith don't want to have the onus of having to read something else. You know what I mean? Right. <clears throat> we have a difficult time encouraging the saints to read the Book of Mormon. I mean, how right. many saints do you personally know that really have read the whole thing and read it and studied it well? I wouldn't yeah. say it's a majority. Yeah. Let alone the New Testament, let alone the Old Testament. Right. The Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price. And now I'm telling them, wait a minute. By the way, here's 66 more ancient texts that are really important that you should study. I think it's overwhelming to a lot of people. Right. I can, Number two, oh. just uh, plain ignorance, innocent ignorance. Until I had conducted this survey, I didn't know that all of these texts existed. That was part of the purpose. I want how how much of this stuff is out there? Where is it? What's it called? I, you know, there's just so much. <clears throat> you know, I I think I can understand why maybe a, and I'll use the quotation marks here, Orthodox Christian would want to stay away from them. I mean, if you're right. an Orthodox 
if, if you're an evangelical or something like that, and this yeah. isn't really a knock, that's going to challenge your faith a ton. Some of the stuff that gets talked about in there. Well, but I, I, I feel as Mormons, we should, we should be embracing this more. We should be seeking after this more, digging in there and finding what we can out of that. Elder Oaks, oh, a little over 10 years ago or so, in general conference gave a talk entitled All Men Everywhere. At the end of the talk, speaking of the fact that Latter-day Saints anticipate, our doctrine is that more scriptures will come forth, right? Yeah. And then over the pulpit of general conference, he said, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls exemplifies one way in which this might occur. So he stopped short of saying Dead Sea Scrolls of Scripture, but he certainly gave a different allusion to it. Yeah. Yeah. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are full of LDS doctrines and temple references. So, and, and, and what it, the more we dig, the more we find it's fascinating. Like for the longest time, we thought that there was only one hebrew temple right correct and in just the last decade if i'm not mistaken they've discovered another one to my knowledge there are three or four right right and and the more we seem to dig and find and look the more we seem to find joseph smith was right again and again and as that <laughs> continues to happen I just don't know how much longer uh, the skeptics are going to be able to hold out, right? I mean, you look at, at just the, the sheer amount of evidence. I mean, just the, the science of statistic probability of on, course. on a, you know, teenage farm boy starting to come up with these ideas that are bullseyes in obscure Hebrew Gnostic texts. There are three websites that every Latter-day Saint should be familiar with. Book of Mormon Central, Evidence Central, and Pearl of Great, Pearl of Great Price Central. Combined, those websites present thousands, I'm not exaggerating, thousands of bullseyes achieved by an ignorant farm boy in the early 1800s. And whenever I have these discussions, and I have them often, and present like my top 50 evidences of his prophetic call, the response of the antagonist is simply to dismiss them. Pure denial. They will not even engage the argument saying, well, because it's a Mormon source, they're all a bunch of liars. And I say, well, clearly you haven't even looked at it because the vast majority of the facts presented in Evidence Central, Book of Mormon Central, have been presented by non-LDS secular scholars, hmm. especially regarding the archaeology of these things. But because you don't want to engage the argument, because you know what that means, you dismiss them. And sadly, I, I'm afraid my book, one of the end results of its influence on non-LDS Christians is to make them want to reject extra-canonical writings. I've had this conversation. I had one guy who bought my book, wanted to meet with me. And as far as I could tell, his purpose of meeting with me was to see if he could discredit the book so that he could feel comfortable with his belief system. Just because, because he understood the significance. Well, yeah. If my, book, if, if my book is accurate, Joseph Smith is a prophet. Right. 
right? And now you have to wrestle with that. And now right? you have to wrestle with that. Did I ever tell you the uh, the story of when I was back east? Um, so we I, I went back east because they survey differently in the 13 original colonies than they do in the west. And I took a course in Jacksonian America. And uh, again, this is this is Maryland, right? So it's not like Mormons are a great surplus out there. Right. Right. But I remember this professor. He said one of the things that was just so profound that stuck with me. He said, when we start talking about the Mormons, because you can't really talk about Jacksonian America and, and westward expansion without talking about the Mormons. Yeah. Right. Yep. And he says, when when one discusses Joseph Smith, you have to recognize what he was able to do. And so you're left with one of two options. Either Joseph Smith was the most raw genius that has ever been produced, certainly on the American continent, if not the world, or he was what he said he was. And then he left it from there and started talking about the Mormons. After the, the, uh, the semester was over, I had the opportunity to just sit down with him a, a little bit. And I asked him about that comment. And I said, what, have you, what conclusion have you come to? And he just looked at me and he said, uh, uh, I don't ask the question because I don't want to have to wrestle with the answer. <laughs> that, re that reminds me of a recent conversation I had with a good friend and a great Christian, a, a scholar of the Bible and a lover of the word of God. We were talking about you know, the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, of course. And I said, let me, said, let me put a point on it. When the Book of Mormon was published in 1830, less than 25% uh, of the archaeological claims in the Book of Mormon could be demonstrated, or could be verified. Today, well, 25, 20, 25 years ago, um, Clark, archaeologist in the church, he estimated that over 75% had been verified. Today, I would estimate personally, I would like to see another survey of those facts. Over 90% of the archaeological claims of the Book of Mormon have been verified by secular archaeologists, especially with these new LIDAR surveys. Right. Raised highways, flocks, herds, populations in the millions, the largest cities in the ancient world, fortified cities everywhere. I mean, come on. <clears throat> Anyway, when I, I said that to him, and faced with the reality of that, he said something that was interesting that I've contemplated before. Well, if that's the case, we have to consider Joseph Smith clearly knew things he shouldn't have or couldn't have. Well, he was either receiving that information from God, or he could have been influenced by the adversary. Right. So for people who don't want to believe he was a prophet, there's still that out. Well, okay, he did supernatural things, but because it was an evil power. My response was, is, well, Jesus Christ already answered that question. You, know, you can, uh, there are uh, wolves who will come to you in sheep's clothing, and you will know them by their fruits. Right. Yeah. A bad tree cannot bring forth good fruits, and a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruits. You know, and, and you know, we he finagled a little bit about what was meant by fruits but the answer is what he produced produce right. yeah what do you think the future of these texts are 
now that we have them, now that they're here, we have the intellectual ability to decipher what they're saying. What do you think the future is for them? Let, let, let's, let's do a two-parter on that question. Okay. What do you think the future is from a secular standpoint? And then let's talk about what the future of those texts are from a Mormon. <laughs> that's, a very good, that's a very good way to break it up. Uh, secularly, I think they will continue to be <clears throat> neglected and forgotten by mankind. <clears throat> to show you, uh, a lot of the texts are available in these 1,000-page volumes. These are scholarly volumes published by uh, reputed and renowned Doubleday books. Right. Edited by, were edited, and, and each of the books are presented by experts in the field. And yet, how many people know of this? This has the three books of Enoch in it, the Testament of Adam. Uh, I mean, well, it has like 20 or 30 texts, ancient texts that nobody knows about or cares about. And this was published in 1980, I think, 1983. This has been around for 40 years. Still no one knows. Do, now, you, do you chalk that up to just people just don't know? Or do you think there's something else that keeps people from it? Uh, yes and yes. People just don't know. There's so much. And it's so obscure, honestly. Most of the discussion I have on my webpage for my book is just defining what is meant by Apocrypha. I have to say it over and over and over again. There's the 14 biblical apocryphal books. And then there's everything else, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. My book isn't about the biblical apocrypha. It's about the everything else. And I, 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 I knew I was going to get into that when I titled the book, because I did. But it, it, I had to have a title that would draw people in and the word apocrypha will do that instead of just saying uh my concordance <laughs> right lds teachings well, that's a big seller and it's not about selling but <clears throat> so um ignorance for sure they just don't know and just being overwhelmed and number three they don't care honestly i mean the bible used to be the world's textbook yeah it no longer it no longer is right the majority of the Christian world, I mean, they're becoming non-believers. The Christian Christian denominations, by and large, are shrinking, with very few exceptions. So, uh, as a non-believer, the, these texts will continue in obscurity. And I think that plays into how Christ described his mission amongst us here on earth. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way. And few there be who find it. What about the? <laughs> Here's, wait a minute. Here's a question in the Epistle of Sophia. Mary asks the Savior, Lord, how many of us will make it into the kingdom of light? And he answered her, gave her a number. He said, one in a thousand or two in ten thousand. Huh. Which goes along with straight as the gate, narrow as the way, few there be who find it. Which is why God has created three kingdoms. Right. We're not all going to be stuffed in exaltation. We're going to be, if you ask me, I think it's a bell curve distribution. This is how we're all going to end up, you know, top and bottom. And most of us will be in the middle somewhere. But um, <clears throat> most people do not 
will not get it nor appreciate it ever because the things of God are not important to them. The great and spacious building is what's important. And let's not forget the vision of the tree of life. There were people who partook of the fruit of the tree and still dropped it and went to the great and spacious building. Yeah. After having partaken of the fruit of the love of God, having experienced it firsthand, chose the great spacious building. We have to understand that that is a fact, that there are people who will prefer that even after experiencing the love of God, they will choose the world. So, no, I don't believe these texts will ever be widely reputed or well-known, nor do I ever expect my book to be a, a bestseller. I mean, it was it was the best new seller on Amazon for about a day just because it was new. But beyond that, it, it's not a big seller. It, how could it be? But, do you think it's the same for, for Mormons as well? Absolutely. Yeah. think the same answers apply there? Yes. Yes, I do. Um, my favorite story along those lines was Hugh Nibley, his college roommate, who was not LDS at Claremont. Um, he and his, uh, they were made roommates, not because they were alike, but because they were both intelligent geniuses that so they put them together. Hugh Nibley, straight up Mormon boy. What was his name? Paul Springer, I think was a black sheep man he was not nice and paul would give they, they became best friends and paul would ask you nibbly why hugh why haven't you tried to convert me yet hugh said maybe god doesn't want you <laughs> <laughs> but ironically much later in life they'd gone their separate ways and paul was practicing attorney on the east coast somewhere in the east was baptized became converted became a latter-day saint and after attending church for a month, went inactive mm. because of some offense. He nibbly dashed off the letter. He says, Paul, don't you know that Mormons are just as stupid as everybody else? Right. <laughs> yeah. What a truth. You know, yep. we, we get caught in this trap, Mormons and non-Mormons alike, that Mormons aren't human anymore because we're Mormons, which is... There are just as many stupid Mormons as there are stupid Catholics and stupid Jews and stupid everybody else. Right. And so, yeah, I said the distribution curve is probably the same. I think there might be more interest just because it's from an LDS perspective. Uh, but I could probably count on one hand the people that I personally know that have read my book cover to cover. You know, I mean, I, it, it's a dense read. I understand that. And I don't, I don't judge people. Again, I published the book not to make money. I just fought people like you. And there are a few of us who get crazy about this stuff so that people would see it and know that it's out there. And it's been gratifying. You know, I think, I got to tell you, my fear is for the next generation even more than guys like you and I, right? I'm, I just turned 45 this past month. I'm not going to tell you my age. Go ahead. No, oh, you look. Don't don't sweat it. You look good. If I look your age, and when I'm 45, I'm in good. I mean, when I'm <laughs> your age, I'm I'm in good shape. <laughs> um, but um, I uh, my kids, especially kids who were raised with Google, right? They have no time for. I'm just going to call it what it is. BS, right? They'll either get you know if they can't get someone to tell them the answer they'll go find it unfortunately 
what I see as a byproduct of that is they don't have, and I, this isn't, I'm trying not to make this a blanket statement, but by and large, most of them don't have the attention span anymore to sit down and do a deep dive, right? I have to tell you though, on the other hand, as information becomes more and more accessible and ubiquitous, and people get better and better at sifting through information. I mean, my book would not have been possible without the digital age. Right. Without the internet, without the ability, without Amazon for me to even acquire these things. And then the digital capacity to throw this stuff together and have it published by myself, because everybody else said it was too big or something. I, uh, so, I mean, just having heard you say that, I have hope for this kind of information that maybe people will begin to pay more attention. But to the second part of your question, in terms of theology and religion, um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I believe, is wisely cautious not to be adopting new scriptures left and right willy-nilly. Number one, we still don't have the urtext, the original text of any of it. Dead Sea Scrolls is pretty close, right, for those texts. But they are wise to be cautious, number one. Number two, <clears throat> there are a couple of books that have become bestsellers in the Mormon market that are really terrible in terms of their content. It's just fanciful, fictitious, false doctrine. What books? It's, I am not going to say on your podcast would you tell me after we're done recording i will i will because i don't want to i don't want to offend anybody because they're they're true believers and these books have fired their faith tragically when the faith is fired by false doctrine there will come a time when their faith will take a take a tumble because when that false doctrine is proven false so i don't even know where i was going with this um Oh, in the distant future, because we do believe scriptures will come forth and will be one in our hand. I was going to quote uh, the Bible, a Bible verse. I think we're in the end of Mosaic. Bible, a Bible. We have enough Bible. We already have a Bible. We have no more need of a Bible. I love that. Um, why, you, you would think I would have this memorized by now. Oh, there it is. Second Nephi 29. So this is doctrinal, right? Know ye not that I, uh, this is 2 Nephi 21, uh, 29, verse 7. Know ye not that there are more nations than one. Know ye not that I, the Lord your God, have created all men, and that I remember those who are upon the isles of the sea, and that I rule in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And I bring forth my word unto the children of men, even upon all the nations of the earth. Wherefore murmur ye, because that ye shall receive more of my word. Know ye not that the testimony of two nations is the witness unto you that i am god that i remember one nation like unto another wherefore i spake the same words unto one nation like unto another and when the two nations shall run together the testimony of the nation shall run together also anyway skipping that's the idea <clears throat> skipping to verse 13 and it shall come to pass that the jews shall have the words of the nephites and the nephites shall have the words of the jews and the Nephites and the Jews shall have the words of the lost tribes of Israel 
and the lost tribes of Israel shall have the words of the Nephites and the Jews. That's the prophetic book of Mormon, that we will, the you know, words of the Jews being the Bible, the words of the Nephites being the book of Mormon, the words of the lost tribes could be my book. I don't know. Someone asked if my book was a, another witness of Jesus Christ. I'd never thought of that, but it is. Yeah. Not because I wrote it, but because they all testify of Jesus Christ in one way or in a very big way and very much the same way as the Book of Mormon does. But again, they're copies of copies. That's why they call them pseudepigrapha. Until we have an original text, an urtext, as the Germans would call in German, what they would call it, we have to be careful. And even if we did have the urtext, it would take a prophetic stamp of approval for us to take it up and treat it as scripture, the word of God. Having said that, I believe these 66 texts are. Heaven help me, I, I'm not saying go and teach them gospel doctrine, but I do believe they're edifying. And for those who are prepared, and those who are interested, um, it's, well, it's uh, bolstered my faith in many, many ways. So, That's awesome. But in the end, in the end, when do I believe verse 13 of 2 Nephi 29 is going to be fulfilled? Uh, millennially. In the millennium. Right. Clearly, we're not ready now. Clearly, it could start to be happening. But if Christ is coming, as soon as a lot of people feel, there won't be time to right. have, in addition to the quad, to have three quads, you know. Well, you'd need six quads. 66 six. books is a lot of a lot of quads. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know what, though? You know, it's funny. And I did. I promise you, I didn't even know this. I just compiled. And the reason that there are 66 texts in my book, that's how many ancient texts I found that had corollaries with the restored gospel. Do you know what other book has 66 books in it? Bible. The Bible. I nearly fell over. It's like, are you kidding me? Are you mm -hmm. kidding me? The same wow. number of books. That's just funny to me. Absolutely. Although I have, there are other, there are other ancient extra canonical texts that have been published since I published my book. So it's going to go from 66 to maybe 80 in the future. Well, and that's the other interesting thing is that somehow now we find ourselves in a time where these seem to be coming forth with greater regularity than, than we have seen before. Yeah. And I'm, I'm super interested anytime I read about one because I just have to wonder what's there. And it drives me nuts. I have to wait for the scholars. Yeah, I'm the same way. English. What does it say? What does it say? Yeah. And, and the other thing I'm always cautious about is, um, you know, how much, how much is kept out, how much is mistranslated those sorts of things right i mean yeah. I, that that's that's, that's, a, that's yeah. always a problem it's yep. inevitable and yep. i don't know and i don't know that it's malicious i don't know that people are trying to do that but translating from an ancient text to modern english i don't care who you are that's a that's a tough call that's 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 a hard thing to do it is and and my and my respect goes out to all of the people who have done so and done so well enough the Latter-day Saints recognize the text. Yeah, absolutely. Like DNC 18, or like the temple rites. Right. Or, there are a couple of them, like Dead Sea Scrolls. You read it, and anybody who's been through the, who passed through the veil cannot mistake it. Right. You go, oh, my goodness. 
what is that doing in the Dead Sea Scrolls verbatim? Yeah. Even after, even after being translated from ancient Hebrew, I mean, Hebrew that might be over 2,000 years old into modern English. Right. And it's unmistakable. Hmm. But that, that's the other issue that we don't, you know, even, even the Book of Mormon, a lot of critics love to get at, but the Book of Mormon has mistakes in it. Well, guess what? Welcome to the world of printing and publishing. And Joseph Smith, you know, in the title page, you know, says if there's any mistakes in here, they're the mistakes of the men. Mistakes of men. Right. I, so where, where, yes, he did say it was the most correct of any book. He was also very quick to say, look, it, it came forth, you know, by the divine, but it went through mortal hands. Right. That's right. That's right. And well, so, and what I love to point out, the uh, um, Oliver Cowdery's manuscript, when it was given to the printer, had zero punctuation. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, wonderful scholarly works by Royal Skousen and others have through extraordinary intellectual prowess have identified some of the scribal errors and yes there were scribal errors and why they happened because yep. he was he was writing with quill and ink hearing what joseph would say and writing down words that he was unfamiliar with you know and then the printer would have to make sure that was perfect and there was no spell check i mean for heaven's sakes they it's wrote a it the book was ever with a feather right, right. i mean right Let's let's give the guys a break. They wrote it with a feather. That's right. So that's right. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. So that that's always a consideration. Has to be. Yep. Well, Ken, we've been at this two hours, brother. It's so been a lot of fun. It okay. has been. So I got a question for you. Yeah. Um, you talked about a presentation you gave that gave fifty points. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. My my uh, my short list of Book of Mormon. Or evidences in support of the Book of Mormon. Yeah. That's just Book of Mormon stuff, let alone for yeah. a great price. Would you be interested in coming back on maybe after the first of the year and talking about that? Oh yeah. Let's oh, do yeah. that. Let's, let's do that. Do it. Let's after do it. after the first of the year, let's do it. Cause man, I love talking to you. And Ken, the other thing is, is I feel like you what you're doing here is so important, especially right now. Right. Look. For those who are listening, Ken is a devout LDS guy, and I respect him for that. I am a fundamentalist, but we're in a time where Mormonism as as a whole is under attack. And I feel like that that the work that Ken does is so important because it lends credible scholarly um, evidence to the restoration. And I can't commend you enough, Ken, for the work that you've put forward. I've been through your book, man. That's not something that you put together in a long weekend, sequestered <laughs> no. in a room somewhere. That is years and years of work and scholarship. <laughs> so uh, certainly uh, for myself and uh, anyone else who finds that book uh, as, as interesting and as important as I do, thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing it. Well, thank you. Uh, that means a lot to me. I, like I said, it was a selfish pursuit and it was fun. I was like a it's like a treasure hunt for me going through all those texts and always so exciting because I have such a love for our faith. But uh, but it's been very rewarding and gratifying to have people like yourself um, relate to the work 
and find it as inspirational as I do. So thank you. And I look forward. Our next talk's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be awesome. We'll uh so awesome. I'll I'll contact you say right before the new year and we'll set something up for the first of the year. That'll be fun. Awesome. All right. Bye everybody.